0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Good Journey Pod. I'm your host, Brady Josephson, where every week I get to chat with thought leaders, innovators, fundraisers, and marketers in this world of good. We get to hear a little bit more about their stories, what they're up to, some things that they've learned, and hopefully these little insights can help you in your day, life, and career. On the pod today, I'm joined by Anne Rosenfield. I met Anne at a conference dinner event. And um, she shared a great story about an organization called Rainbow Railroad that she's on the board of and kind of their uh, startup story. And she actually has experience with a few different startups. And so that's actually what we're talking about today is uh, fundraising uh, for startups and young nonprofits, something that uh, doesn't get discussed a lot, actually. So I hope you like it. We also talk about monthly giving, uh, old school fundraising versus new school fundraising and more. In addition to her volunteer work with Rainbow Railroad and some other organization and Anne is the editor at Hillborn Charity E-News and also works as a major gifts fundraiser. She's been doing this for a long time, over 20 years, and knows a ton. So I hope you uh, enjoy the episode, and thank you, as always, for listening. Hi, Anne. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks, Brady. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, We bonded, or I think we kind of bonded. I don't know. You can tell me if we actually bonded. I uh, had a dinner after an event a while back, and um, one, we kind of had a bet over a fundraising stat. You were calling me out on misusing a stat, but also very quickly understood you are a fundraising and philanthropy nerd like me. Uh, how'd you become such a nerd in this industry and area?
1: Uh, you know, right from the get-go, I, um, I actually researched, um, I'm one of the few people of my era of fundraiser who actually chose fundraising and philanthropy as a profession. Mm-hmm. Um, And for those who don't have a picture of me, I am very gray haired and middle aged. Um, (laughs) So I started researching right from the get go in terms of uh, what the trends were in the sector and what what kinds of uh, things it was important to know. And to me, the other side of being a nerd is to being really valuing um, staying current and professional development. So, I think we're not nerds. I think we're incredibly well informed.
0: <laughs> All right. That's, uh, that's maybe a better way to say it. I'll take it. So, you've been in the kind of fundraising philanthropy world for a long time. Uh, you work for some kind of uh, work and volunteer for some large organizations. But one thing that stood out in our conversation was your involvement in startups, and particularly one startup, Rainbow Railroad. Uh, which is an amazing story. And so uh, if you can share a little bit about that story, and then I want to talk about your experience with especially fundraising and startup nonprofits, because I think it's, it's fascinating. So uh, Rainbow Railroad, and, and then we'll get into the startup and fundraising side.
1: Sure. So Rainbow Railroad is an LGBTQ refugee organization and uh, really works to help people in countries where they, their lives are in danger and we we help people get to safety. And that uh, I I find very um, important uh, work for a lot of reasons, Um, and really tied into, for me personally, um, my long-standing interest in human rights, and also a very long-standing personal connection I've had with the LGBTQ community.
0: And uh, how did this organization kind of um, evolve or get started? And what's what's your role in the early days and now?
1: Sure. So we're still a very young organization. The organization is only 10 years old and was started by a group of activists. One of the activists includes a guy, Michael Batista, who was my board chair at the AIDS Committee of Toronto when I was staffed there. Have a lot of respect for him. But at the time, it was a... um, you know, kind of, you know, go around the table, Hit up family and friends, and maybe raise you know three or four thousand, maybe six thousand dollars, and help bring someone to safety. So it was a one person at a time organization. So still doing great work, but but very slowly. And I met someone actually who was volunteering for Rainbow Railroad. I had known Michael. This was about five years ago, and at the time the organization was raising maybe twenty five thousand dollars a year. And so the combination of a cause. That I'm very passionate about that can have a huge impact, and a great board chair. So, I knew that this was an organization that was going to be able to um, use expertise well. So, those combined made me decide that I wanted to volunteer. Because I will say, on a side note, um, I get a lot of calls from people and they want to have coffee with me, and it's pretty clear what they want me to do is to come volunteer (laughs) to be the full time unpaid fundraiser. They usually also want me to pay for the coffee that we've just had.
0: <laughs> um,
1: and I'm not so on board with that. I'm really happy. I am happy to roll up my sleeves, but I want to know that I'm not you know, going to be in lieu of you hiring staff. So I felt confident that it would be well managed. Mm. I felt confident that the organization had a good vision, which they did and a lot of other good volunteers, which we do. So I got involved and I think this rolls into your next question so I got involved and I looked at the organization and applied all the, you know, all the classic rules of fundraising, um, which are true regardless of era. They just get executed differently. So, you know, we had a mailing list at the time. I, like I said, we were raising $25,000 a year. That was about five years ago. I think we had maybe 200 people on our list okay so what's the first thing you're going to do well you're going to be sure that you're thanking every people properly right so um at the time I was the only fundraiser in the group so I, rec- I recruited a couple of other volunteers that were doing in other areas and we'd split up and um two of the guys would do thank you calls for everybody who made a single gift. uh, I can't remember, but I think anyone who made a single gift of below a hundred dollars. And then if they made a gift above a hundred dollars, I think they phoned them, but I also wrote them a handwritten thank you note. Mm -hmm. So, you know, pretty just classic fundraising and um, started doing stuff like we uh, then the next year, So with that and some other stuff, we raised $50,000. So this is four years ago. And this new great volunteer came on and he wanted to do an event. And so I'm like, okay, you want to do an event for us. That's awesome. Um, And we did it like through Eventbrite or something. I want to see all the attendees ahead of time. And then I prospect researched all the attendees to find, you know, the one or two people in that room that we wanted to be sure to say hello to and book another meeting with. And one of the people... Was a friend of this guy, so this guy Caleb, who was the event organizer, pulled together a you know essentially a third party event to use our fundraiser jargon here. Pulls mm-hmm. together a third party event. Someone that was a family friend of his comes, straight middle aged guy. I prospect research the guy. The guy's given a hundred thousand dollars to multiple charities. So guess what? You know we thanked him after the event in June. Uh, kept in touch with him about our work. Uh, booked a meeting with him in November that year. Uh, Caleb and I went and did a pitch and he said yes to a $25,000 gift. So remember, this is an organization that was on, had only raised $50,000 the year before. And mm-hmm. now we've got a large donor. And at the same time, um other colleagues in the organization had been able it was world pride here in toronto and um so i i in no way want to make this sound like this is the and show i did at all because that would absolutely factually not be correct what Mm -hmm. it was was a lot of people working strategically and intelligently so Mm -hmm. my colleagues worked with td bank um, and we were able to get a two-year grant as part of TD's commitment uh, when World Pride was here in Toronto. So that two-year grant, which was $80,000 a year, allowed us as an organization to hire our full-time first full-time executive director. So mm. that was a, that's part of the smart board chair who's saying, how can we invest um, to be sure that we're also you know, doing what we need to do as an organization? So fast forward, I think the next year it was $130,000 a year, and my years start to get mixed up. Our growth has been exponential. So fast forward to today, Mm -hmm. we just have won from AFP Toronto, Excellence in Small Organization Fundraising. This year, we've raised $2.2 million so far. And more importantly, we've brought over 170 people to safety. Um, And a lot of that, as you hear the story, is all these things I'm describing are very, you know, and whether it's executed by phone or whether it's an email or whether it's a a face-to-face meeting, those those are absolutely classic fundraising strategies. Now, it absolutely helped us that our marketing chair, who's done this as a volunteer, is a top drawer marketer. So our website has always... Um, answered questions well has been easy to navigate and has been clear and that is something that i think generally speaking old school fundraising hasn't done well but it's certainly a case study and man it sure i mean yes the cost in that was the free consulting that otherwise you would pay for but the execution of having a good website not expensive
0: yeah so there's a bunch of things in there and i think one of the the key things is um the kind of slow growth, even though it's been exponential. Most of the times when I sit down with startup nonprofits, they're saying, you know, we've got 200 people on our list. We raised $50,000 and we, we are going to raise, or we want to raise $500,000 next year. And you kind of step back and go, that's, that's a great, like aspirational vision. (laughs) But the reality is, is it, it's going to take like hard work day in and day out. And this kind of over time, unless somehow you get unbelievably you know, lucky, someone just drops from the sky. But like it takes thank you calls, doing prospect research, going from 25 to 50, 50 to 130, 130, you know, you know what I mean? Instead of this idea that-
1: 100 um, 100%. 100%. We'll just
0: hit the mother load and all of a sudden we're, we're rolling. It's like, that's just not how it works. And if that's your plan, you're screwed. <laughs>
1: exactly, and I mean, I'm talking about an organization that's experienced a tenfold increase but over five years. Yeah, um, yeah. And I agree with you. And yeah, you know, so the other two things I just want to highlight that we use that were very effective in terms of building our donor uh, pool and upgrading was uh, we found a donor, a different donor, um, actually one of the local unions that was prepared to give us a $10,000. And we went back to them and asked them if we could use that as a year-end match for a matching campaign. So the first year that we did a year-end campaign, so we'd never done one before. So this was, I think, three years ago. I think we raised $20,000, which once again, we're like a $50,000 organization. That's a lot. So we raised 10 from the match. And then we got that other 10 from you know, our donor public. But match, classic, right? And the other thing is, we also pushed hard um, respectfully to get people on monthly giving. And so that's been huge for us, too. Because we've gone from a couple of years ago, we were getting $1,000 a month. Uh, a few months ago, we were getting $7,000 a month. So that's the other thing that really feeds your path. But as you say, it's not, you know, for the most part, this is an organization that actually has gotten several grants from Elton John, which is awesome. But for <laughs> the most part, all that groundwork came first, right? So, like this story, although this is awesome, we're 10 years in for five years, this was a tiny little organization. And even as you say, it was 25 to 50, 50 to 130, right? It wasn't 50 to half a million. It was 50 to 130. And I think 130 to 300 and then 300, I think to six or 800. So, so those are still big, awesome increases. But you know, that hit the lottery through, you know, which is essentially what an ice bucket challenge or a Coney 2012, or, um, I don't know, a celebrity decides they love you and they do it the, the, like that stuff. It absolutely happens, but it's just the same as buying a lottery ticket. You sure shouldn't be planning. That shouldn't be part of your plan.
0: Yeah. I think one of the things that, um, is smart for startups but also you know nonprofits almost in general is even when forecasting or budgeting you almost have like even if it's two scenario like low high or low medium high of saying you know here's the baseline of what we can reasonably expect and then maybe you have a more aspirational like hey if if so-and-so actually gives who we haven't even talked to yet, then we're at this. So you can kind of build in some aspirational values. But the problem I often see is because especially startups are so fueled by, you know, personal passion and belief that it's like we're going to raise a million dollars. <laughs> and You're like,
1: oh, but how?
0: So you don't want to undercut the aspirational you know, passion, because that's really what is fueling. That's why people volunteer their time like you. That's why people work so long because they care. So, you know, how do you kind of harness that while also being realistic so that you don't, you know, just spend a bunch of money or get people get frustrated because you only raise $300,000, which is amazing, but they were planning on a million. So now you feel like crap or so. How do you kind of like fan the flame of passion while also not letting it run wild?
1: So I think that's a great question. And, you know, um, For folks who are listening, for example, if if someone contacts me and says, can we have a coffee, I'm always going to say yes. Um, But you know what I'd suggest, instead of asking me, you know, kind of what are your three secrets or how can I write a better grant, I would suggest that you sit down with somebody who's got more of a business background. So they can be either uh, someone who's been around the block in fundraising or just someone who's um, you know, a little bit of a devil's advocate in terms of your friend group, and get them to ask you all the tough questions about your charity. And so, if you're passionate about it, that's really valuable because that's that's what caused you to found it, and that will help you move yourself forward. At the same time, in order to be successful and to get to that, you know, half a million dollars or million dollars, you need to be able to answer tough questions from mm. from bigger donors, and And people generally are asking tougher questions. So you're going to need to be able to answer the question. Well, you know, people can generally answer the question really well. Why did you decide to found this charity? They can't answer the question often as well. What other charities exist in your space? Why did you decide to found this charity instead of partnering with someone else? Mm -hmm. Uh, are you partnering with anybody, you know, those kinds of things. So I think the, the the best thing you can do is is while keeping your passion alive, have the strength of courage to go talk to someone who's a bit of a contrarian, a respectful contrarian, and get them to ask you a bunch of tough questions about what you do, because then that will help you position yourself better for success.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, obviously, the like board and leadership and advisors and volunteers is, is really important. But I think, the temptation is to just grab a bunch of your friends and people who think like you or in your circles. And that's not necessarily a, a bad thing, but you're going to get a kind of one way traffic in terms of what that feedback and ideas are. So it's a great point to try to find someone else who uh, is maybe outside of that sphere or thinks a little differently um, because that'll, that'll be great input for you and challenge you to think a bit differently as well about your, your nonprofit. Um, so jumping back to month of giving a bit, were there any kind of, key things that that you um either learn from that or uh any struggles in trying to convince people that hey this is the thing let's ask for 10 bucks a month instead of a hundred dollars right now or um was there any of those struggles or any key insights for us because i'm a huge believer in fan of monthly giving and think it's incredibly important especially for startups but It's not always the easiest thing to win people over to for some reason.
1: That's a great question. You know, the the thing I'll note is um, I often find if I say to someone, look, if we've got someone and they're giving, it's just the simple math. Now, the problem is that I think our sector, for strange reasons I don't understand, doesn't tend to get people who have strong math skills, which I'm not quite sure why. Mm. Um, But I find I will often say to someone, look if we have someone who's giving us $25 a year, if we can give them, get them to give us five bucks a month, that's in the same giving ballpark, right? A $25 donor can probably give us five bucks a month, they're, now they're giving us 60. So we'll get our five bucks a month for the first five months and then after that, it's all gravy and I find people can often conceptualize more in those terms. Mm-hmm. I think some of it's also though bearing in mind uh, you may have, I'd love to hear your thoughts in terms of monthly uh, donors. My experience has been that it's kind of, you know, a normal monthly donor is often a 15 dollars dollar donor, maybe 20 maybe $10. Um, so, you know, it's also to manage that expectation. You know, you're not going to, if Mr. Jones is giving you $1,000 a year, they may not convert to $100. They may convert to $100 a month, monthly donor. They're likely not going to give you $500 a month as a monthly donor as well. So it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of managing, you know, kind of some of the reality. But the other thing I just wanted to highlight, I think one of the challenges, I didn't have pushback organizationally, but one of the things that was tough for us as an organization was all that infrastructure. You know, when you're small, actually getting people set up for monthly giving is really challenging. And if you don't have a donor database yet, and so you have to do stuff like manually run it every month, um, that can be a real problem. So for us, we decided to go with Canada Helps, like I'm not associated formally with them in any way. (laughs) Um, But I think sometimes doing some of that, it's, it's, it's both about when you're thinking about your great ideas, it's about the great idea but it's about execution. So in kind of summing up here in terms of monthly donors, it's worthwhile, use your math, but also really be conscious about your execution.
0: Yeah, the math part has continually kind of blown my mind. Because <laughs> it's uh, pretty obvious when you just sit down and actually crunch the numbers, like monthly donors give on average more in a year and way more over their lifetime. Like you said, often the kind of uh, break even point in terms of the trade off between monthly gift and their one time gift is about 6 maybe 8 months and then like you said after that point every other donation's gravy but they're committed each month so they're much more likely to stick around and so you don't have to oh they were out of town this year for the gala therefore we lost them and therefore they're gone and it's so hard to get them back just Absolutely. there's so much immense value in recurring or monthly regular donors for a, for a startup nonprofit so I think the problem or the challenge is if you're a startup, often it's like we need cash, right, to operate. We have bills to pay. So how do you then say, OK, we're going to play a bequest strategy when we're in year three, you know, uh, or, or how do you plant some of that long term thing? Because I think trading short term for long term is fundamentally one of the, the mindset shifts that nonprofits typically are poor at, at making. So how do we start doing a better job at making that
1: shift? Well, there's two pieces of this. One is, I would say, you know, kind of getting back to your your monthly point. I think when you're looking at monthlies, you're going to say to people, "Well, and we, you know, you have to pay the hydro bill every single month. You have to you you have to have electricity every single month. So monthly donors are actually great in terms of revenue smoothing. Like they're really, really advantageous in uh, in that way. So that's a big benefit of monthly donors. I'm not so sure that, um, and I, I, I get super keen. I'm a super, I'm you know, I'm an old bequest loving person. Um, most charities, I don't think, in year three, you are going to get bequests. Most charities, however, in year three, you know, it depends on your charity. My observation is, is most people are planning to be in doing this work for a long time. So, if sure. you're founding as a charity and you believe you will be in existence 20 or 25 years from now, then Another benefit of having your monthly donors is not only are they loyal and not only uh, is it good for you in terms of, as I say, income smoothing, they're also building your foundation for down the road when you're a bit more established as a charity that you can start to talk to people about bequests. Now, some people, and I know there's a trend in our sector where people are doing startups, but they're also saying, I want to be time limited. So in that case, a bequest may not be your best bet. Although I will say, because for every rule, there's always an exception. So in the early days of HIV AIDS, um, especially in the US, there were a number of American uh, HIV AIDS charities that sprung up. And they actively talked about bequests because in those days, people were it, it was horrible. And people were dying a lot. And so the idea was, we hope you live a long time, please put us in your will, and that that your bequest gifts will help get us closer to a cure. So interestingly, in the early days of the AIDS movement, there was a strong drive for bequests because at the time, there was no cure, and there was no treatment, and people were dying very quickly, and they wanted Mm. to get as much money into the system to stop this from happening to other people.
0: Right, I want to shift gears a little bit uh because one of the other things that we bonded over or that I found really interesting in your story is you have all these connections to kind of the institutions of fundraising, right? Like AFP and Hillborn, Imagine Canada and so on. And I'm not always the biggest fan or supporter of some of these organizations. Um, so I kind of want to just have a chat about how have you seen these organizations adapt. To kind of this nonprofit landscape or um, you know why are you so involved in these what's the future of these um, why are these so important or how have you seen them change over time
1: okay I think there's about seventeen questions in there um, <laughs> I'm gonna say at the end of the day and I think this is this is you know at the end of the day uh, the late Hank Rosso said you know people give to people and we're all people so whether i'm sponsoring you back in the day when you would hand me a paper pledge sheet and I'd say, sure, Brady, I'll sponsor you for, you know, the the AIDS walk or or you know heart and stroke walk or whatever. And I'd literally fill it in with my pen and hand you a, a, a paper check. Or today when you send me an email or you send me a link or you send me something on Facebook or you text me with a link or whatever. At the end of the day, That's really just about uh, execution and technique. At the end of the day, people give to people. And Mm -hmm. so it's taking um, those underlying principles and then figuring out how to apply them in different contexts. So what I feel is valuable in terms of association, those three associations have values for me in different ways. Um, in terms of uh, AFP, and I have to I have to fully disclose I'm the incoming chair for AFP Congress here in uh, Toronto in 2018, and I'm the editor of Hillborn Charity News, and I'm a volunteer for Imagine Canada. So, um, so I am very connected. What I think AFP and Hillborn do is really um, give you the opportunity at the is it, are we changing as a sector a hundred percent? But until you guys bury the last one of us baby boomers, we're still going to think the way we think, which is annoying, but true. And so you still need to understand how direct mail works. And you still need to understand how galas and golf tournaments work, because you know what, they're still going to be with you for the next 30 years of your career. Mo- many of you will probably retire. Um and still be getting a couple of paper checks from, you know, those <laughs> of us in the dinosaur era. So I think there's value in understanding that stuff. I also think there's value. And I think that AFP and um, other folks get a, a reputation that is not completely deserved. I think it is somewhat deserved for sure, but not completely deserved in terms of understanding innovation and there's not as much of it as there should be, but there is some understanding of the role of innovation, the role of new ideas and the role of new new topics. Um, so whether that be in the form of technology, whether that be in form of research to inform our practice, there's movement there. Where I think Imagine yeah. Canada is... Go ahead.
0: No, just on the the AFP thing, I think it's interesting because a um, 100% agree that The like traditional fundraising methods and golf tournaments and direct mail are hugely, hugely important. And I think what's what's challenging and actually a bit of my career path has been straddling between I have a master's degree, nonprofit and I'm a nonprofit nerd. And I've been trained in like the old school ways. But because I was in startups and I'm younger, I've been fully digital. So a lot of the kind of work that I've done has been like translating from. Hey, here's like direct mail and here's what it looks like in the mail world. But the principles are the same. So I think that's hugely important because I do go to some conferences or talk to young people and they want to market fundraising and and new, new things. And they're all about Snapchat programs and they want to market it like selling shoes. And it's like, this is wrong. Like this isn't, this isn't fundraising. This is like, you're chasing something that's not built on, um, you know, like a solid foundation. More of my problem with the AFP has been a very insular, like you're one of us kind of uh, club. Um, But more so, it's large organizations. Like the people that speak, the people that you hear from have often been really large organizations. And because these people raise $100 million, they must really know what they're talking about. When the vast majority of people who need help and training and support aren't working for $100 million organizations, they're working for the Rainbow Railroads. And that's great that you have this, you know, big fancy gala and budget, but I've got $5,000 and no staff. So a lot of the content and people speaking, I find, don't really help the people who actually need the resourcing or help. That's been a lot of my experience.
1: Well, and I would say, and yes, and, um, because I'd say a couple things. First of all, through AFP. And I'm, you know, being a pretty staunch AFP person here. Oh, that's good. (laughs) I'm going to get critical in a minute, but in a different way. Um, You know, AFP has things like the Chamberlain Scholarship, our local chapter have uh, bursaries available for charities who raise less than a million dollars a year. So I think AFP hasn't done as good a job as it needs to do about letting people know that they can come come to conferences at a very low price or for free. And I would challenge listeners to say, look at what someone like a hospital for sick children is doing. Look at what those organizations are doing and what lessons can you extract from them. The biggest thing I learned from large organizations when I worked for a small organization was donor research. So in my last job at Woodgreen, you know, which at the time we were, we were, when I started out, we were actually losing money when they started uh, out. Um, one of the first things I did was look at who was the lead sponsor of our golf tournament, did quick donor research on them, found out that they were giving us $7,500 a year and they were giving sick kids a million. Well, I knew they weren't going to give us a million, but I upped my ass to 15,000 bada bing, bada boom. So learn from what large shops do well, um, which you can learn from these conferences. The other thing you can learn from these conferences is you will often be talking to the same major donor people that the, these folks in these conferences are talking to, or that type of person. What do they talk like? What do they look like? How do they dress? How did what, how did they show you? You know, the you may not have all the same bells and whistles they have when you're face to face with that donor. If that donor just finished talking to the big children's hospital and the big university they're not going to expect you to be as fancy, but they are going to expect you to bring an A game for what's relative to your level. So you need to know what an A game looks like in other contexts. So that would be the second thing that um, I, so, you know, learn from that and use that to your benefit. Um, This is great. For example, you're doing this, you know, we live in an era where you can build your profile. So, you know, small charities can, we can help each other, through podcasts, through Twitter, through LinkedIn, through all kinds of stuff. Like we can, we can help build our knowledge. Where I do think AFP, um, uh, I'm going to talk about AFP internationally has not had the strength it should have had is around diversity and inclusion. Like mm. that's to me the real um, Achilles heel in, in AFP. The Toronto chapter, in my opinion, has done exemplary work in this. AFP International, I think, is getting there. But that's where I think we're really missing. I actually think if folks are listening to this, I think that discomfort or that feeling that AFP isn't a fit is because if you're under 50, um, and you are, you know, AFP as a, as, a, as a organization, you know, everybody looks like me, a white, middle-aged, straight woman. And If you aren't part of that, I think it feels a little bit like, why do I want to go to a conference with a bunch of people who look like my grade five teacher? So I think that's where AFP's got uh, actually the really big challenge. It's not around good content. It's around not feeling relevant to people younger than me.
0: You bring a couple of good points because I think one of the things is it does vary chapter to chapter. So there's a lot of autonomy within local chapters and some are great and some are different and some have different programs. So, um, that, that's one thing. And there are, um, you know, scholarships and bursaries and not everything is about the big organizations and to learn from the good from large organizations absolutely is key. But I think you're right. I think that's a good point where even, even if the content is good, the, the maybe feeling or vibe or association, like I know for me going to a stuffy breakfast in the morning with a bunch of like older straight white people or whatever you describe, like that's, even if the content's good, it's just I don't want to go, and I think that's a challenge for a lot of people. And you're right, the need for diversity, and it's important for the sector, but I think it's important for AFP itself to kind of promote that and and even be more, um, you know, relevant to people who are looking for that.
1: But I'm going to note here, you know, because you mentioned three, you mentioned Hillborn AFP and Imagine. You know, I will mm-hmm. note, uh, and once again, I am the editor of Hillborn we hillborn's been publishing since like 1991 and Mm. we we i put up four fresh articles uh a week on a wide range of topics so if you're Mm. a small shop and i'm totally biased but go you (laughs) know you know go google hillborn charity e-news and subscribe because We've got. I I just did a plenary session last week, and we've got 203 articles on donor stewardship, Mm. and by very senior people in the profession. But these are 500 word articles. Like, there's a lot of really good quality content um, out there uh, that has been, you know, evaluated. So there are more. The other side of it is there's a lot more resources available to folks now than there were 20 years ago. So. It's really more about finding trusted sources. So folks like you, folks like Hillborn, where people know that the quality of the content is solid. It's not just some random person who decided to start a blog and doesn't actually know what they're talking about. So, you know, yeah. go look at the quality and, you know, maybe get a little bit into your discomfort zone about maybe some of the people you have to hang out with a little bit and maybe push a little bit um, with your local AFP chapter to try to get them to move forward move stuff along to make things work better for you.
0: The trusted source piece is a a great point because especially with all the different areas that you can get content and people are so desperate for content or tips or training that um, you can get a lot of it. And now some of its opinions or maybe beliefs like my beliefs and opinions are maybe different than someone else, not to say I'm right and they're a credible source, but there are some, you know, less credible sources. And so it's not just finding content. And I think that's what's so important about AFP and Hillborn Imagine, the ones that do have the credibility is like I sat in an AFP meeting where people on stage were talking about how important it was to have low overhead. And I wanted to just puke in my mouth and walk out because we're teaching this from the stage and it's so damning. And I I was so furious because people are like writing it down, like how to have low overhead And maybe that's my own personal belief. I think it's probably more on the right side than wrong. And just saying, because it's a trusted source, it's not just some random person. There's even more pressure and importance to have bang on quality stuff for people. And that's an isolated incident. Uh, But you're right. Trusted sources are are super, super important, of which you're a part of some.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, and I don't think, I think, you know, like there are a lot of, um, it's like anything in life, not everything is going to be a hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time, right? AFP is disproportionately volunteer driven. That said, there is great content out there on um, on actually on cost and on administrative overhead. So I'm going to toot my hillborn horn again and say James Temple <laughs> wrote an excellent article from the Price Waterhouse Foundation that has an excellent four page uh, illustration about talking about differences in overhead. I just was on. Uh, Uh, TVO, the agenda in August talking about overhead. So that's eminently Googleable. But the other thing I wanted to highlight in terms of trusted sources is talking about um, Imagine Canada. And one of the things, reason I volunteer with Imagine Canada. So one of the things I would suggest people do is whenever you have a question before you kind of go racing off is the the first thing to ask yourself is, has anyone ever had this problem before? And if you think about it for a minute, the the answer is likely yes. Mm -hmm. So one of the things trusted sources like AFP and Imagine can do is AFP has uh, very strong ethical standards uh, and strong guidelines, and Imagine also has those already in place. And I know speaking from the Imagine side, I'm speaking for myself not on behalf of Imagine, but speaking from Imagine side, you know, we've had people come up with questions like, "Is pay for click on uh, Facebook um, does that fall? Is that considered unethical? Because is that considered commission-based fundraising?" So that's part of why I'm going to say it is folks, maybe park some of your assumptions on the door at the door about the assumption that some of these long-established uh, professional associations maybe if you assume that they only know about kind of yesterday's ideas, but aren't really Mm -hmm. grappling with more current questions, that's Mm -hmm. why I'm going to say you might want to reconsider that because these kinds of questions are coming up from members and then we have to develop policies around them or procedures around them or, or give out guidance or interpretation bulletins on how to manage things. So you can also save yourself a lot of time through Um, some connection to these organizations, because then you can go find someone to say, you know, uh, for example, we're thinking about accepting Bitcoin. Does anybody know anything about that? Well, if you hang around, you know, kind of this, uh, this group of folks, then sooner or later, for example, if someone asks a question like that, then everyone's going to say you should talk to Jason Shim. Well, you're better off doing that than Googling it to find out how it works. And what are the ethical ways of managing that?
0: That's a good point. And it's a good reminder for me as well to park some uh, assumptions. And um, I'll be sure to challenge myself and some of my assumptions. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, Well, you've given us a lot of your time today. We've covered a lot of different ground from, you know, startups to bequests to institutions and training. Um, Where can people learn more about you and or one of the many, many things that you're up to.
1: Well, gosh, thank you for that. Um, you're certainly welcome to connect up with me at uh, charitablyspeaking.com. You're certainly welcome. I welcome, if so, If you've got an article idea, you know, I encourage you to subscribe to Hillborn Charity E-News, but if you've got an article idea, email me at an at... Hillborn H I L B O R N dot com. Email me your article idea. I'd love to get uh, more articles um, and more ideas. Interact with me through Hillborn, really any any of those places. Love to love to stay in touch and I love and so this kind of circles back to how we met. I love people who ask tough questions and I love to ask tough questions back. So I thank you for you know having a great dinner uh and I think part of how we became kind of uh, uh, nerdy friends is because we (laughs) had this argument over data. But I love it when people (laughs) ask tough questions and inform themselves. So thanks for this opportunity.
0: You bet. Anytime. Thanks again for listening to The Good Journey Pod, a nonprofit supply company production. Be sure to subscribe and get all the past, present, and future podcasts at thegoodjourneypod.com. And you can get more resources and exclusive content by following us on Twitter and Instagram
1: at Nonprofit Supply. Good luck on your good journey.